We're in Mark chapter 12, and of course today, in case you didn't know, is Palm Sunday, um, which is the day that we, as the Church of Jesus Christ, remember the triumphal entry of Jesus Christ. And we studied it just a few weeks ago at the beginning of chapter 11 in our verse-by-verse study of the book of Mark. So we're not going to go back today and look at the triumphal entry or the significance of Palm Sunday to the Christian. We studied that a few weeks ago. If you weren't here for that, you can get the CD today. I think the message was called The King Enters. But be mindful that today is Palm Sunday, the beginning of Passion Week, ending, of course, with Good Friday and Jesus' sacrifice upon the cross. And in our text now, we find ourselves in the middle, or really the latter half, of the Passion Week. And we're going to finish chapter 12 now of Mark, and we start in 1238. Mark chapter 12, verse 38. It says, And in his teaching... Jesus was saying, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets who devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. And calling his disciples to him, Jesus said to them, Truly I'm telling you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. God, this morning in your word, we ask that you would move us into the place of this widow. This woman that nobody would notice that day, that quite possibly nobody cared about, who had no family left. And yet, Jesus, you sat and you observed. And God, your word tells us that in the most wonderful way, you are observing your church. Your word tells us in the New Testament that the angels observe the church. And that, Father, you know when a sparrow falls from its nest, you know all things that are going on. We're asking that today you would observe our hearts as you did this widow. And you would bring us into that place of surrendering to relationship, Lord. Bring us into the reality of relationship with you. Deliver us from this thing that the scribes were into, of this religiosity, this fakeness, this pretending, this game, this desiring the honor of men. And bring us into a place of honoring you, God, with all that we are and all that we have. Lord, there are those of us here this morning who are Blessed and happy in every way, those of us who are afflicted, oppressed, depressed, confused, confounded, and yet we come to you as the source, the reason, the answer, the beginning and the end, the all-sufficient one, and ask that you would work your ways in us as a church, as a people, as a community that you might be glorified and honored in our lives, God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
The title of this message is Religiosity versus Reality. Not reality, the church, but the reality of relationship. And we see already in our text, and we'll explore now, the stark contrast between the hypocrisy of religion pictured amongst the scribes and the reality of relationship that we see pictured in the act of that little widow. The scribes who apparently at the word of Jesus here did everything for show. They were what we would term hypocrites. They had religion without substance, religion without reality. And the pronouncement that Jesus made was that they would receive greater condemnation. Greater condemnation than who? We'll answer that question in a moment. In stark contrast to them stands the widow who would go unnoticed by all but Jesus. And yet we see that she demonstrated greater commitment. And so it follows from the New Testament teaching that she would experience in this life and in the life to come greater reward. Not because, as often needs to be said in the church, not because God wants or needs our money. The Bible's very clear that God is concerned with the hearts of men and women. And what he wants and desires is our heart, or what that is a picture of, the totality of our being. Who we are is why Jesus died upon the cross, that we might enter into a relationship with him, that we might come under his authority, under his ownership, under his blessing, under his care, under his shepherding. So he doesn't want our money, he wants our hearts. The problem is our hearts are often wrapped around our money. And we can't really give of ourselves apart from giving of our finances to the Lord. The old saying is true, money talks. Money tells us where our hearts are. Money speaks in that way. And so we'll ask the question today, what does our giving or your giving, my giving, as individuals, what does our giving say about our lives? Let's first turn our subject to the scribes. As we've talked about before, the scribes were the Bible teachers of the day. They were the Bible scholars. They were responsible for teaching the meaning of the Old Testament to the people in Israel. When they had questions about interpretation or application of the law, they would come to the scribes. And Jesus was warning the people of Israel to beware of them, to see them, to observe them, to take notice and make note and take heed of their hypocrisy. Now, it's important when we talk within the context of the church that we define this phrase, hypocrisy. Understand. Because um, anybody who's not a Christian has to say about Christians, basically, that they're all hypocrites. And what they're saying is true, though they're not using the right phraseology. What they're saying is, well, Christians are sinners. I know a Christian, and I see inconsistencies in their life. I see failures. I see that they're not perfect, and they're not wonderful in every way. And so lacking a proper working term, they say, therefore, Christians are hypocrites. The proper phraseology would be, Christians are sinners saved by grace. They are a work in progress. You see, hypocrite comes from the Greek word meaning actor. 
And to be a hypocrite is to be an actor. It's to pretend. It's to put on a mask. It's to have some sort of exterior that doesn't match the interior. It's to play a game. It is to act. And so it's true that there are definitely some of those within the church that we could properly term hypocrites, no doubt about it. But overall within Christianity, what we see is sincere Christians. Uh, It always amazes me when people come to the church and they expect to see a bunch of perfect people. If we were perfect, we wouldn't be here. We are the mess-ups. We are the ones who have made a mess. The only difference between us and the unsaved are is that we realize it. That we've been able to say, oh my gosh, I'm a mess. I need a savior. I need a redeemer. Here I go into the church. I found the Lord. I want to know more about him. I want to know more of his people. And so I'm going to make it my habit to be in church. But while we are in here, we are still a mess. Though we are being transformed daily into his image as we abide in him. We're works in progress in the most wonderful way. Now, don't let that be for you an excuse. Don't let that be a justification for the inconsistencies in your life. We'll talk about that a little, a little bit later. But in the truest sense of the word, the scribes were hypocrites. And Jesus is, in his teaching, very purposefully now instructing the people of Israel to be aware of them. Let's observe what these religious fakers were doing that made them so dangerous that Jesus took note of them and wanted the people to take note of them. First of all, we're told in verse 38 that they like to walk around in long robes. History tells us that the scribes at the time wore long flowing white gowns that went down to their ankles and then they had long white fridges hanging off the bottom of that gown. Very flowing and they liked to wear that robe and the common people at the time wore colorful clothing. Uh, if you study the culture in Israel in that time, they just they had colorful, simple clothing. And so in a marketplace and in a context such as this, which is the week of Passover, when hundreds of thousands of Jews would be gathered into Jerusalem and circulating all around the Temple Mount in their common clothes, the scribe would stand out wonderfully. He would be like a swan just lilting through the crowd there in his whiteness. And Jesus said that they liked to do this. They liked to wear these robes. Why was that? Well, because these robes made them stand out. These robes spoke without words to the common people that this scribe was different. It made the scribe feel, I'm better perhaps. I am in some way more important than these people, and that is denoted by my clothing. They were power dressers in the truest sense of the phrase. And everything that they wore said, I am very religious. And then it says in verse 38 that they liked respectful greetings in the marketplace. It didn't mean that they liked to respectfully greet others. The scribes didn't go around saying, oh, good day, sir. God bless you. Not by any means. As they lilted around like little white lilies or swans or something like that, history tells us that the people in the marketplace would all stop what they were doing and they would say, oh, rabbi, shalom. Or, oh, my master. Or, oh, father. 
The culture came to such a point that as they moved through the crowd, people would stop what they were doing to respectfully greet them and call them these high terms. My master, rabbi, father, great one. Jesus said that they liked this. Why? They enjoyed being noticed. They enjoyed being honored and revered by men. What else do we see about the scribes? We see in verse 39 that they took the chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at the banquets. Chief seats in the synagogues. The synagogues in that time were um, sort of equivalent to the church today. We gather together in the church on Sundays to listen to the word and to worship together. The Jews would gather together on the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday in the synagogue. And it says here that the scribes like the chief seats in the synagogues. Those were seats that would have been like up here on the platform. So it would be as if we had up here on the stage special seating for special people who deserve to be honored. And so behind me, uh, there would be there these scribe people sitting there. And they'd be separate from the common people, you. And they would look at you and they would sit there with the pious looks on their face. And everybody would say, they must be wonderful. They have a special seat. They must be better than me. They must be more holy. They must be more religious. They have a position. And so we learn from this that the scribes enjoyed having a place of position and authority. We see that they loved places of honor at banquets. Um, reclining at the right or the left of the host is what this pictures. In that uh, Oriental culture, that culture of the Mideast there, when someone had a banquet, they made a point to invite the most important people. I suppose some people still do that today. And the seat of honor was on the right or on the left of the host. And the scribes loved to be seated in this place. And if you were going to have a banquet and you were going to invite the who's who, you would invite the scribes. Why wouldn't you? They had the flowing white gowns and people called them these wonderful titles. And you saw them on Saturday sitting at the front of the synagogue. Of course you want this power player at your banquet and you want him seated at your right and your left. And they liked this. They loved to be in that position. Very contrary to the teaching of Jesus in Luke chapter 14. In Luke chapter 14, round about verse 10, Jesus taught explicitly, that when you are invited to a banquet, you are to take the lowest seat. That is to say to God's people, we are not to assume for ourselves a place of honor. We are, as Philippians 2 says, to esteem others as more important than ourselves. And the principle given there in Luke 14, 11, is that everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. Anyone who humbles himself will be exalted by the Lord. And so Jesus taught his people, very contrary to the practice of the scribes, when you're invited somewhere, go and take the lowest seat. Consider everyone else to be more important than yourself. Do not assume for yourself a place of honor. And so that's very pertinent for us today. In verse 40, we see more about them. It says that they would devour widows' houses. What does that mean? In that culture, the scribes... Um, got their support, as is true throughout biblical times, uh, by people. They were the teachers of Israel, and it was right for Israel to support them. 
that was no big deal. But we see that as many Christian leaders do today, they took advantage of that situation. They perverted that. They devoured widows' houses, meaning they went into these women who didn't have, uh, went into their homes, who didn't have families or anything else to care of, and took advantage of them financially. I think about TBN. You watch it today, and you see men up there in three-piece suits and decadence all around them and sitting on gold thrones and jewelry all over themselves, and they say, you need today to send me your money. And I think about sweet little old ladies home during the day watching TBN, looking for some spiritual nourishment and being deceived into thinking that if I send this fool some money, it will earn me some favor with God. Same thing today in Christianity as was going on at that day in Judaism. Religious leaders were taking advantage of the system that God had set up. It's horrible. Very contrary to that, uh, it says in James chapter 1, verse 27, this is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of God. In other words, this is what Christianity, this is what true religion ought to be. That you visit widows and orphans in their distress and keep yourself unstained from the world. In other words, you don't take advantage of the needy. You care for the needy. That was a mandate in Judaism, and that was a mandate for the early church. In fact, the early church was so preoccupied with caring for widows that there came a point where the apostles said, okay, we've got to assign some deacons here. We've got to find men who are, in Acts chapter 5, men who are full of wisdom, full of the Holy Spirit, and of good reputation, that they might serve the widows' tables. There were so many uh, poor and disenfranchised to care for in the church that they began to delegate that out. And the apostles said, we will commit ourselves to the study of word, of the word, and prayer. But that is at the heart of Christianity. And apart from a mindset and a desire and an active engagement in caring for the needy and the poor, there is no true religion. It is not a real live church apart from that. The last thing we see about them in verse 40 is that for appearances' sake, they were offering long prayers. Not that Jesus here is uh, denouncing long prayers per se, uh, but it is interesting that in the Bible, whenever you see a prayer recorded in the Bible, it's incredibly short. Go through all the prayers of the Bible. You can go through all the prayers of the Bible, and you'll see that they can all be read uh, in under a minute, most of them. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't pray for longer than a minute or anything. But the point here is that they were praying these long prayers for appearance's sake. They weren't actually speaking to God. They were wanting to impress people. And I see this happen all the time. In different prayer meetings around the world as I've traveled and ministered, I just see certain times where someone starts to pray and you just know, this guy's not talking to God. This guy wants to impress me or someone else or wants to hear themselves, or they just want to fit in. It's not prayer. It's not the most evil thing that has ever been done on the face of the earth, but it's not prayer. Prayer is speaking to God. It's never to be done for appearance sake. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, When you pray, you are not to be as the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners in order to be seen by men. 
Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. Now, it doesn't mean that you can't ever pray in public. It doesn't even mean that you can go to the corner of Linden and Carp Ave and stand there and pray. It is more the condition of the heart. They were doing it to be noticed. They wanted, as they stood there in their white robes, they wanted people to go, oh my gosh, look at the rabbi. <gasps> Listen. All oh, the words he uses. Listen. He's going on forever. He's so holy. He's so awesome. He's so wonderful. He's so sick. Jesus said that their condemnation would be greater. They liked to look religious to others. They liked to be noticed and reverently greeted by others. They liked to have position over others. They liked to use their position to take advantage of others. And they wanted to sound and appear religious and pious before others. And Jesus says their condemnation was greater. Greater than who? greater than if they had just been outright in the open sinners. What Jesus says here is it would be better for you to say, I want nothing to do with God. I want nothing to do with religion. I don't care about the Bible. I don't care about praying. I don't care about poor people. I don't care about any of that stuff. Jesus is saying it would be better for you to be that person than to be someone who put on the mask than to be someone who played the game, than to be someone who was just going through the motions. It's a very pertinent warning for the church in America today because there are many people in every church the New Testament teaches that would put on the mask, that would not be sincere in Christianity, don't actually want to respond to the Spirit of God or the Word of God. And Jesus simply says their condemnation, meaning at the judgment when they are assigned to hell, their place there will be worse than others. In the New Testament, it's very clear that there are degrees of what hell will be like. For the person who says, I outright reject God, they will be in a better place in hell, though hell's a bummer all the way around. They will be in a better place in hell than the hypocrite who played games. Now, the warning is first to the teachers. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, because as such you will incur stricter judgment. I, as a teacher of the word of God, will be judged more strictly than you will. That, if you're not a teacher, some of you are teachers, that has terrified me and distressed me and concerned me for the last 10 years of my life. Hardly a day goes by when I don't think about it, but it's had a purifying effect in my life, and yet I'm a sinner saved by grace. And then to the general Christian, or to the person who is not a Christian, but pretending to be. And Jesus gave the parable of the tares and the wheat that he would allow the tares to grow alongside of the wheat until the end of the age. What was a tare? A tare was a weed that grew in Israel in that day that looked exactly like wheat while it was growing. You couldn't tell the two apart until it came time to bear fruit. And the wheat would bear fruit, but tares never bore fruit. And so what the farmer didn't do was try to go in early before harvest time and tear out the tares, T-A-R-E-S, because he couldn't identify which was which, and in doing so, he would have tore out some wheat. 
He waited until the fruit came forth. And so Jesus said concerning true Christians, you will know them by their fruit. And at the end of the age, when Jesus comes to judge, there will be a separation of the tares from the wheat, or as it's termed in Matthew 25, the sheeps from the goats. There will be those who say, Lord, Lord, we did all sorts of stuff in your name. And he'll say, depart from me. I never knew you. Those who either intentionally or not so intentionally, but having rejected the ministry of the Holy Spirit, trying to convict them of sin, have been in the church, but have not been redeemed by the head of the church, Christ Jesus. I want you, each and every one of you, to examine your heart today that there wouldn't be anybody in that place. That there wouldn't be anybody here playing church, going through the motions, just because it's the right thing to do. Maybe trying to gain the approval of others or trying to garner the praise of men. Perhaps there are those here who maybe they are sincere Christians, but they have this desire to always want to appear super spiritual. And so they put on an act on Sunday or around other Christians. There are those here in the church who desire a position in the church because they feel that it will bring them some sort of honor some sort of glory that people look at them and go, ooh, 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 you have a desk at the church. You're an usher. Oh, you wonder, when do you get your white robe? There are those in the church that are desiring position because they desire the praise and the glory of men. There are those who simply out of, I don't know, laziness or blindness, I'm not sure, who are in the church and they're going through the motions, but there is no reality of relationship. There hasn't come a change in their lives. They haven't responded to the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit was sent to convict the world concerning sin, judgment, and righteousness. And wanting to be comfortable, not wanting to be messed with, they've come into the church year after year and they sit here like this. And they just guard their heart and they go, mm, and they just grin and bear it. And they're there, they may be there for years, but they have never yielded themselves to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and either allowed him to convert them, to save them, for them to be redeemed, or they're simply stuck in a rut as baby Christians because they don't want to go through the growth process. Growing hurts, especially if there's a quick growth. For some of you, the Lord's plan for you is so wonderful, he wants to grow you quickly. And when you grow quickly, I know because I'm six foot five and three quarters, uh, it can be a painful process. I had, when I was growing up, all sorts of growing pains. Uh, one of the pains was emotional. I was such a spaz growing up because I grew too quick, and so my coordination didn't catch up with my body size. And so listen, I'm going to tell you a true story right now. It's not a big deal. My poor father will probably be, no, he won't be embarrassed. He's cool. But um, he was there. I, I played t-ball here in Carpinteria. Um, a, local, a local woman still lives here. I won't name her. Um, she was my coach. And uh, I was on the Indians was the name of the team. T-ball. Listen, our team got to like the finals and stuff like that. And there was an announcer, you know, because it was a big deal. It was like the last game. And so there was an announcer, and he said, next up to bat, Britt Merrick. And I can't remember, but I'm sure my mom and my dad and my little sister were like, hooray, and maybe some other friends. And I go up to bat, and God is my witness. At T-ball, 
I struck out. <laughs> Unbelievable. I struck out at T-ball. Wait a minute. The ball isn't moving. It's on a tee. It's, it's just, it's just hit me, hit me, hit me. It's just waiting to be hit. It's look, hit me. I struck out a T-ball. Not only that, but I, I grew so quickly at times. I actually have a couple stretch marks on my back from growing so quickly. Some of you have that. Some of you that had large children have those. And um, I have stretch marks on my back. And I had physical pain a little bit when I was a kid. I grew so quick that my dad wouldn't let me sleep. He'd say to my mom, go in and wake him up. Because if he's sleeping, he's growing. And if he's growing, he's going to eat more food. And we can't afford it. So quick growth is a painful process physically and emotionally. Some of you, the Lord wants to grow you quickly. And when we grow spiritually, it's the same thing. It's going to be pain involved. Consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of our testing of our faith, the testing of our faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance have its perfect result, that we may be mature, lacking in nothing. You see, the Lord will bring about difficulties to grow you. Romans chapter 5, same thing, says we exalt in tribulation because tribulation brings about perseverance and perseverance proven character and proven character hope and hope does not disappoint. But some people refuse to submit themselves to that process of God and so they come to church and they close up their heart. And they say, I'm going to hear the word, but I'm not going to take the word into my heart. I'm going to see what's going on, but I'm not going to truly respond to it. I'm just going to come and I'm going to put on my happy Sunday mask and you are a hypocrite. And it would be better for you if you just outright stood up and said, I hate this. I'm sick of this church thing. I don't even want to be here. I'm going to the beach. I would say, God bless you. Good move. That's better than sitting here as a hypocrite. I might call you Monday and say, hey, dude. Why did Jesus teach them explicitly that they were to beware of these hypocrites? Because there is a danger in hypocrisy, a very real danger in religiosity and hypocrisy. Firstly, it can keep you from salvation. That which we just spoke of, that you deny the work of the Holy Spirit, not willing to yield, not willing to hear, not willing to follow. And because of your hypocrisy, you're wanting to just act and play games. It can keep you from salvation. And it would be horrible to come to the judgment and say, Lord, Lord, but I went to reality every Sunday for years. And for him to say, depart from me, I never knew you. It wasn't real. You weren't there for me. You're there for some other convoluted reasons. We see this pictured wonderfully. Keep your finger here and go to Mark 18. I'm sorry, Luke 18. Luke 18. Starting in verse 9, it says, And Jesus also told this parable to certain ones who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Exactly like these scribes we're looking at today. 
And Jesus goes on to say in verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax gatherer. Need to understand, especially as we're nearing tax season here, uh, the tax gatherer uh, had different connotations than it does now. A tax gatherer was a traitor to Israel. He was employed by the Roman government who was occupying Israel to extract taxes from the Jewish citizens. The way that he would make his profit is the Roman government demanded a certain percentage. Whatever he could extract above and beyond that amount was his. And so obviously they were first and foremost traitors to Israel. Secondly, they were dirty and underhanded and cruel, and they had the backup of the Roman forces. And so they could tell you anything they wanted. You owe me this much. And under punishment of Roman law, you had to give them that much. So they were really, truly the scum of the earth. And they're used throughout the New Testament to denote such. And so Jesus here is drawing a Contrast, there's a Pharisee, an ultra-religious, well-respected member of society, and there is this low-life, traitor, scumbag, outcast, and now they're both in the temple praying. And look how it unfolds in verse 11. The Pharisee stood and was praying thus to himself, it says in the original language. He's praying thus to himself. And he said, God I thank thee that I'm not like other people. Swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax gatherer. Lord, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now contrasting, Jesus goes on to say in verse 13, but the tax gatherer standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. The definite article is there in Greek. The sinner. And Jesus comments and says in verse 14, I'm telling you, this man went down to his house justified, cleared of guilt, declared innocent by God, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself shall be humbled, but he who humbles himself shall be exalted. Having that attitude of, I'm okay because I do religious things, can be dangerous to your eternal condition. That was this man's thing. I pay tithes, and um, I fast twice a week. I do religious stuff. I go to church on Sunday. I even go to Bible. I even go to a home group. I do religious things. I'm okay. You see, there is a danger in not really engaging because you can do religious acts and then somehow justify yourself to say, I'm okay because I do thus and so. But the Bible teaches clearly that we are not saved by works, but by grace through faith and not of works that no man should boast. And so the man who was engaging with God on his knees, unwilling even to look to heaven, so aware of the reality of his sin, beating his breast saying, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. That is the one whom God honored, whom God forgave, and who God had a relationship with. The other one, notice the phraseology, was praying to himself not to God. So hypocrisy and false religiosity is very dangerous because it can keep you from salvation. Secondly, it's very dangerous because it can keep others from salvation. We've already talked about the fact that the universal charge levied against the church is that we are all hypocrites. And so if we truly are hypocrites, 
If we're really playing a game, putting on a mask, just acting, people will know. We live in the day of reality shows. Our church is called reality. People today want reality. People know when you're faking. People know when you're playing a game. You may come here, you may have the sticker on the car, and you might be the biggest fake in town, and the only person you're fooling is yourself. People know. People are not naive today. People are not dumb. And so now they feel very justified in blowing off Jesus Christ. Because you've just proved their point. Christians are hypocrites. You're really actually acting. You're really playing the game. And so now they feel justified in saying, why would I want a God like that? Why should I submit myself to Jesus Christ? What is real about that? I don't see anything real. I don't see anything actual in your life. Very dangerous to put on these false religious displays because they can keep others from salvation. Here's what we ought to do. Um, we ought to just be honest and true about who we are in our community. Don't try to act holier than thou. Model grace and forgiveness. This will keep you for sure from being a hypocrite. Be willing to admit your faults in front of people, non-believers, co-workers, schoolmates, roommates, whatever it is. Be willing to admit your faults. Not to the point that you shock and awe them and cause them to run out of the room. But be willing to model grace and forgiveness. Be real. Hey, look, man, I mess up. Here's some areas where I mess up. Here's where I'm struggling. But look, I ask God to forgive me and he forgives me. And here's how he's changed my life. You see, we need to model for people grace. Instead of trying to pretend like I'm a Christian, therefore I'm perfect, which is utterly wrong. We need to model the reality of grace. I am a mess up. I have been saved by grace. There are some things I used to do the Lord has delivered me from. There's some areas that he's given me victory in. There's other areas I need to grow in. And there's areas I'm trusting him in. So having modeled that for people, making it very clear to them that you're just like them, a sinner, but you've been forgiven, then you need to extend that grace and forgiveness into the lives of others. That is the most powerful Christian witness. Christians of all people in the world ought to be free from bitterness. Because Jesus said, as you have been forgiven, so forgive others. And he said to Christians, if you don't forgive others, I'm not going to forgive you. Not meaning in a salvific sense, but meaning in that abiding with him intimacy of relationship sense. And so of anyone in the world, it ought to be a defining mark of Christians. You will know my disciples by their love for one another, by the fruit in their lives, that we ought to be free from bitterness, able to forgive beyond anyone else on the earth. Bitterness is so silly. You know what bitterness is? Bitterness is drinking poison and hoping that it hurts the other person. That's what bitterness is. Your bitterness doesn't hurt anybody but you. It opens the door to Satan in your life. Holding on to bitterness is like opening the door of your heart and saying, Satan, come in here and mess with me a little bit. Derail my Christianity, destroy my witness, steal my joy, disturb my peace, mess with my head and my heart and my emotions. I refuse to forgive them. Here you go. Is drinking poison and hoping it hurts the other person. Forgiveness is shutting the door to the opportunity of Satan in your life. It is shutting the door. 
Forgiveness doesn't mean that you pretend like nothing happened. Oh, it was nothing. <laughs> it was nothing. That's not forgiveness. Forgiveness is knowing that there is a real and actual debt and freeing somebody from it. They actually truly wronged you. There really is a debt there. They really did wrong you, but you are willing to just free them from it. Cancel out the debt. Doesn't mean it didn't hurt. Doesn't mean it wasn't real. But that's what forgiveness is. That's what Jesus did with us, right? There's a real actual debt, and he was willing to free us from it. He didn't go, oh, it didn't actually happen. It was all make-believe. It happened, man. You really did it. But he frees us from that debt. Hypocrisy never does that. Hypocrisy will never model grace or forgiveness. Hypocrisy is dangerous because it has no power to deliver, heal, or set free. The promise of Jesus Christ, why we're going to invite people to the Easter service this week, is because Jesus Christ can heal them, he can deliver them, he can set them free. He can give them new life, abundant life, and eternal life. But religiosity and hypocrisy have no power to do that. 1 Timothy chapter 5, please. And then when you get there, go to 2 Timothy chapter 3, which is what I really meant. 2 Timothy chapter 3. Second Timothy, all the T's are together in the New Testament. It's a wonderful thing the Lord did for us. Second Timothy, chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Know this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. The word of God to the church. Know this, in the last days, things are going to be tough. For men are going to be lovers of self, lovers of money. Men are going to be boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful and unholy. They're going to be unloving, irreconcilable. They're going to be malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God holding to a form of godliness, or as it can be translated, religion, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Reality check here. In the last days, people are going to be like that. And many of them will hold to some religion. They'll hold to, as it says, their godliness, but denying the power thereof. They will be hypocrites, fakes, the tares among the wheat, the scribes. And there will be a danger in this because it is void of power. And it is the power of Jesus Christ that makes Christianity unique. It is the entrusting and investing of power in his church that makes us meaningful and relevant to the world. 
Our relevancy is not because we have a cool Easter flyer or we have colored lights or because our building is by the beach or because we just dress all so laid back. The church has to stop trying to be relevant in those carnal ways. I hate when the church tries to compete with the world. We'll never be better at being worldly than the world. Stop it. They will always beat us at that. Our relevancy and our value comes from the power of Jesus Christ to deliver, to heal, to set free, to forgive, to make new. And if we are not real Christians, then the power is void and we are sending people to hell in a handbasket with a smile on their face. It's dangerous. False religiosity and hypocrisy are dangerous because they don't deliver the fruit of the Spirit. Fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5, through 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you're a hypocrite and you're just playing the game, these will never enter into your life. You will be void of love, void of peace, void of patience, void of kindness, void of gentleness, void of faithfulness, void of goodness, void of self-control. Jesus said in John 10.10, the enemy came to kill, steal, and to destroy. And the truth shall set you free, he says elsewhere. He says there that he came to give us life and that more abundantly. Satan has come to rip people off of their lives, of their vitality, of their joy, of their eternity. And religion will not save them from that playing games and coming to church and hooray, hurrah, kumbaya will not deliver anybody. But truly following Jesus as Lord and Savior, walking in his commissioning, his authority, his grace, his forgiveness, his power, and verbalizing the gospel and caring for people in need will destroy the work of the enemy as was done upon the cross. Amen? Religiosity rips people off because it makes them think I'm okay. I'm okay because I appear religious. I have a Bible at my house. I'm okay because I go to church. I'm okay because I have a position. I'm okay because people think I'm spiritual or I'm able to sound spiritual. I'm okay because I pray. Religiosity acts as a sedative that lulls you into complacency. And in no uncertain terms, God says that he hates it. God hates something? Yeah, he hates it. I've been reading in my personal devotions a book of Isaiah. And um, Isaiah chapter 1, you can go there if you like. You should probably go there. I'm going to read a couple verses from there. I feel that I've made my point, and I'm now belaboring the point. But allow me to read these last couple passages. And then we'll finish the text with the little widow woman. In Isaiah chapter 1, the Lord is being very straight up with Israel, specifically with Judah. And in Isaiah chapter 1, verse 10, he's going to be speaking to the leaders and the people of Judah, the southern kingdom. And it says in Isaiah 10, Isaiah 1, 10, excuse me, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now, he's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed some time ago. He's talking to the leader and of God's people and God's people. He's saying, you guys are acting like a bunch of Sodomites and Gomorrahites. 
And so he's saying, listen to me. Verse 11, what are your multiplied sacrifices to me, says the Lord? I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle. I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats. When you come to appear before me, who requires of you this trampling around in my courts? Bring your worthless offerings no longer. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of all your assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity and your solemn assembly. I hate your new moon festivals and your appointed feasts. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of them. So when you spread out your hands in prayer, I will hide my eyes from you. Yes, even though you multiply prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are covered with blood. Whoa. The Lord is completely writing off his people here saying, just stop it. Stop coming before me with all this religiosity. Stop playing these games. God says, I hate this. He himself instituted the sacrificial system. He himself, Christ Jesus, instituted the church. There are things we should do, but in reality of relationship, not in the emptiness of religion. And when it is merely that, you just going through the motions, God says, please stop. I can't endure it anymore. And he says what would be better in verse 16 is wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Not meaning take a shower, meaning repent. Remove the evil of your deeds from my sight. Cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, reprove the ruthless, stand up to those who are wicked in the world. Defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, I'm willing to make them white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. If you consent and obey, you will eat the best of the land. I will bless your socks off. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. Truly, the mouth of the Lord is spoken. The truth will set you free. Walk in truth. Don't play games. Let's finish our text back in Mark. I told you to put your finger there about 40 minutes ago. Just very briefly now, contrasting all that we just heard about the scribes with what we see about this widow. Mark 12, verse 41. And Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the multitude were putting money into the treasury and how many rich people were putting in large sums. The poor widow came, put in two small, small copper coins. Those were the smallest Jewish coins in circulation, which amount to a cent. Or in that time, one sixty-fourth of a day's wage. So Jesus is there, and he's watching. And we know because women were here that this was the court of the women in the temple. And in the court of the women, we're told from the Mishnah, a collection of Jewish writings, that there were 13 trumpet-like coffers in the court of women, 13 little things, places, where people could deposit their money. We're told in Matthew chapter 6 that people would do this sounding a trumpet. That they would come with their offering and they'd say, look at me, I'm giving to the Lord. Look at what I'm giving. I'm rich, I'm giving a lot of money. I want everybody to take note. Look at me, I'm putting it in. Seems ridiculous to this church, thank God. This seems like insanity. Uh, 
very real in that day. Matthew chapter 6, Jesus says it explicitly. When you give, don't be like the hypocrites that want men to see them. Don't let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Give in secret, and your God who sees in secret will repay or reward you. I got invited or asked to do a wedding in New Orleans some time ago, or as they say it, Narlins. And my wife and I went to Narlins, and we were so excited to go visit a church because I've been, uh, before we started this church, I've been at the same church forever. And we were just excited to experience new things. I was going to the south, and um, I wanted to experience a southern church. I wanted to experience the life, you know what I mean. And we walked into this church, and it was, it's hot in New Orleans, I understand. And I was wearing a, Hawaii, a silk Hawaiian shirt, um, corduroy shorts, and flip-flops. And my wife was wearing some flowery dress. And we had found a church, someone had recommended it. And we walk into this church. It's an all-black church, first of all. We're the only white people there. No big deal. But they were all dressed in three-piece suits and beautiful clothes. And I walk in with my surfer tan and my surfer hair was kind of long then and my flip-flops and my Hawaiian shirt and my wife's in her little flowery dress and we felt like a fish out of water. But I have never experienced such love and acceptance as I did at that church. Unbelievable. People forever were running from the front of the church to come greet us in the back. Wherever we were, they were finding us. It wasn't hard to do. We kind of stood out. But they made a point, every one of them, of coming and hugging us and saying wonderful things to us and welcoming us and asking us about our life. I never felt so loved in my life. It was so biblical and awesome in that sense. It was so right. It was what a church should be. God make this church like that. If we'd see someone we don't know, we would just, ah, we love you. Who are you? We want to embrace you. God make this church like that. But then it came time for the offering. And they had little envelopes. And they would take the offering and um, they would put it in the envelope. And then on the outside, there's a place to write the amount in your name. Now, this blew my mind. After they stuffed the envelopes and they wrote the amount in the name, they would fill the aisle way and they would begin to dance down the aisle waving their things. They would dance down and they're waving their envelope like this. And the music was terrific. The music was playing in the big Hammond B3 organ. And man, they were doing it like it should be done. And the people were dancing phenomenally. It was wonderful. But it was a little weird. And then they would go and they would hand directly to the pastor their envelope. And after that went on for about 20 minutes, the pastor took the next 15 minutes or so to go through and read every envelope. Oh, the Jones family gave $300 today. Praise the Lord. The Smith family, $1,000 today. Praise the Lord for sure now. Oh, <laughs> Went through and read every amount that every person gave. Now, in my wicked little heart, what would that cause me to want to do? Give more. In my wicked heart, he's going to read my name i got to have the biggest number next to my name. i got to, oh my gosh, okay, I'm going to give more. That's so unbiblical, so wrong. Exactly what Jesus was talking about, exactly what was happening 2,000 years ago in the temple. People were coming to put their money in, and Jesus was observing how they gave. He wasn't observing what they gave, but how they gave. In other words, he was observing their heart. And this little widow comes along, and she puts in a cent, and he says, 
She put in more than anybody else because she gave out of her poverty. Everything that she had, it meant literally everything that she had to live on for that day, she gave it to the Lord. Others gave far more, but they gave out of their surplus. Understand, the Lord is not concerned with the portion that you give, but the proportion. Understand that. Uh, some of, someone may give $50,000, but to them, it's not that big of a deal. Someone else may write a check for $20, and to them, it is a step of faith. And that is what the Lord is looking for, because he has called the righteous to walk not by sight, but by faith. And again, it's not because he needs or wants your money, but it is because our identity and our hearts are so often wrapped around our wallets. And so because we're looking for reality of relationship, we exchange sacrifice for sacrifice. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die upon the cross. And so our response in is a sacrifice, Romans 12.1. I urge you, therefore, brethren, to present your bodies a holy and living sacrifice, which is your reasonable act of worship. It makes sense to respond to the sacrifice of God with a sacrifice of yourself. And you cannot give of yourself, according to the New Testament, not me, but I agree with the New Testament, you cannot give of yourself without giving of your finances to the Lord. And again, it's not the amount. It is the attitude. It is the proportion. It is are you giving in a way that is sacrificially and causes you to have to live by faith? Have you? Gosh, please just extend mercy to me right now. Let me not be your pastor for a minute. Let me just be another Christian sitting with you at Esau's having coffee. It was at Esau's having coffee years ago that someone sat me down and talked to me about tithing. Please let me not be your pastor. Let me be this guide to you. And he, I was just a young girl in Christian. He said, Britt, are you tithing? Tithing? What are you, nuts? I'm not tithing. I've got so many guitars to buy. I've got so many places to go. I've got surf trips to go on. I'm going around the world. I can't afford that. And he took me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. It's just the last book in the Old Testament. It's just right here. Malachi chapter 3. Last book in the OT. He took me to Malachi chapter 3. Took me to verse 7. It says, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, God speaking, have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, the people said, how should we return? God, how have we walked away from you? And God answers them and says, well, will a man rob God? Yet you're robbing me. But you say, how are we robbing you, God? And he says, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house, and test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Then I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of the ground, nor will your vine in the field cast its grapes, says the Lord of hosts, and all the nations will call you blessed for you shall be in a delightful land. Now, if tithing were just an Old Testament principle, then Jesus would not have sat in the temple and observed how people gave and called his disciples and said, come here, come here, come here, come here. You got to see this. You got to see this. Come here. What, what, what? Come here. You got to see this. Look how this woman gave. They all gave out of their surplus, big amounts. Hooray, hurrah, look at me. Here I go so much, bam. She just came in 
unnoticed by anyone except for the God of the universe, slipped in all that she had that was nothing. And Jesus said it was more than anybody else gave. If tithing was not a New Testament principle, Jesus would not have sat there, called his disciples over there, and taught them that lesson. Allow me to be that person sitting down with you at coffee saying, are you tithing? If not, you're robbing God. You bring a curse upon yourself. And the moment you begin to, he will open up the floodgates of heaven and pour out blessings until they overflow. He will rebuke the devourer for you. And the nations, the multitudes will look and say, you're blessed. That's the principle of tithing. In fact, it's the only time in the Bible where God says, test me. He says, test me on this. You go ahead and try me. It's the only time God's ever going to say that to you. Test me now in this. And so I ask you, and I ask myself, have you ever given to the work of the Lord sacrificially? Thinking about that, what does your giving say about your spirituality? Because the New Testament teaches that we are stewards entrusted with God's resources to expand the kingdom of God, stewards, entrusted to expand, and that we are to be giving sacrificially, should the Lord ask. Have you ever given so much that it hurts? The widow did. Jesus thought it was wonderful. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. And uh, Lord, it's really challenging. I'm not going to pretend that it's not. Your word is radical, and uh, today you've called us out in many ways. And Lord, I would just pray over my brothers and sisters here and over this church that you would free us from religiosity, Lord. You would simply convict us where we're playing games, any area of our life where we're faking it. And Jesus, let the truth of your conviction set us free. You died on the cross so that we wouldn't have to fake it. You died on the cross so that we can confess that we're sinners and yet be accepted, adopted, forgiven, and loved by you. Rid us of that religiosity. Lord, please do it in this church. We've heard the danger of it. We don't want it. We want reality of relationship. And we want to respond to your sacrifice, Lord, with sacrifice. Help us. Help us with our hearts, our emotions, our security, our hope, our time, our trust, our priorities, our family, our pleasure, our finances. Help us to see ourselves as stewards of the resources of God's kingdom. To seek first the kingdom of God. To give the widow's might. And to trust you in all things. It's wonderful to live by faith. Beckon us to it, Lord. Purify our hearts that we might hear you. Burn away anything that would keep us from following you this day, Lord.